We are living in unique times, not unique to the world per se, but at least unique to us with this coronavirus and all that comes with it. It's left many of us feeling very nervous, very concerned, uh, very um, aware of our frailty. How have you been handling it? I mean, have you been concerned? Have you been nervous? Are you worried about, about the issues of health or wealth? You know, there's a great burden on our medical uh, facilities, but there's also a burden on mental health. Many of us are struggling with depression and anxiety. What do we do with this? How do we handle it? Well, interestingly, the scriptures give a common command that is be not afraid, that we shouldn't be afraid. It comes from the mouth of angels. It comes from the mouth of God himself. Be not afraid. Now, that command implies that we live in a disordered world. It implies that we live in a world that there are things that cause fear and fright. To be not afraid is what he says. We live in this disorder, this chaotic world. Now, that's what the preacher is dealing with in our passage today. He's dealing with a disordered world. Look with me at 9.1. He says, but I laid all this to heart. I examine it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. But he says, I laid all this to heart. I examine it all. What did he examine? Well, he examined life under the sun, this disordered world. I mean, the idea that, that while wisdom is better than folly and while righteousness is better than wickedness doesn't insulate us from the problems that we're going to have. I mean, if you think that being wise and being righteous will lead you to a life of rewards and joys and easygoing life, the evidence doesn't support it. No, it's, we've been reading here in chapter 7 and chapters 8 on, on how our world is disordered. Just last week, we read that the righteous often receive what the wicked deserve and the wicked receive what the righteous deserve. There's a certain moral ambiguity to life. You know, the young die and the, and the evil live. I mean, you have this pandemic hitting both good and bad. Uh, there's a confusion about it. And for many, the confusion leaves us wondering not just about God's plan, but about God's care. Does he love her? Does he love us or does he hate us? Well, remember, the preacher has a word. Now, that command in Scripture is do not be afraid. So that implies something about the craziness of our world. But when he says do not be afraid, it also implies something about the life God wants us to live. God wants us to live a life where we're not in fear, even in the midst of the disorder. But the way the preacher says it is actually quite encouraging. He says, not simply do not be afraid, but he says, enjoy life. Rejoice. Enjoy what you eat. Enjoy what you drink. Enjoy the life of the wife that you love. Enjoy life is what he says. It's incredible to enjoy life in the midst of disorder. That's what we're called to do. Now, there, granted, there are two threats that he's going to deal with, the certainty of death and the uncertainty of life. Those two things are going to be a threat. Now, you're going to see the certainty of death to be found in 1 to 6, and you're going to find the uncertainty of life, these uncertainties we face in 11 and 12. They're like bookends trying to press this call to joy out of your life. We don't want to let that happen. So we're going to look at those two bookends first, and then we're going to go for how we are to live in the shadow of our own death. So let's talk about the certainty of death first. This is the first threat we have to living with joy. 
Look with me in two and three. He says, it is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So he's saying here, there's a certain evil under the sun and this evil is that all are going to die, but it's not death itself. That is an evil. The evil is that death seems to happen to the good and the bad, the wicked and the righteous. It, it almost seems unfair. It seems evil that regardless of our moral actions, regardless of our faith, regardless of anything we do, it seems to come upon both. You know, this idea that there's, that there's nothing better for the righteous, no loopholes, no exemptions, no caveats. There's everybody faces the same end that death is certain to all, regardless of how you live your life. Now, you know, you begin to think, is the preacher a fatalist here? I don't think so. We're going to see that. But the first thing you take away in verses two to six is, is number one, uh, that death is certain to all. Uh, but also death takes all. If you look with me at, at four and five, he says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. This is kind of interesting. It states something obvious, right? That it's better to be living than to be dead. But notice how he does it. He sets up this contrast between a dog and a lion. And he's saying, if you had an animal to be, if you wanted to be one of those two animals, what would you choose? Now, before you ask, or before you say, don't think lassie, don't think old yeller. Uh, what you're called to think of is a Middle Eastern dog would have been a mangy, dirty, diseased scavenger. They did not have household pets. They were threats. They were the scourge. So he's saying, what's better? Is it to be the scourge and living or to be the king of the jungle, the lion? But it's dead. So you choose the living every time. So he admits that it's better to be living. Why? Well, because when you're dead, you're no more. Your memory is forgotten. All the accomplishments, all the accolades, all the things that you've done, they're forgotten. You know, consider in 100 years, nobody will know you. They'll never know that you even walked on this earth. There is something final. There is something absolute terminal to the point of, of, of life when you die. Nothing, now, this isn't speaking, by the way, that there's no afterlife. We've already seen that when we spoke about the judgment of God. But he's saying that there's something final and complete to it. So in verses 1 to 6, we find this truth that we will die. It's a certainty. Now, have you given this much thought? Have you laid it to heart? Have you examined it? How often do you think about your own death? You know, many of us struggle with this. Maybe we don't know how. Well, I want to give you a couple thoughts to consider the certainty of your own death, and I think it's going to lead you to greater life, but a few thoughts about the certainty of your death. Number one, consider that death is the fruit of sin. You see this in verse three. He says, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So you see this full of evil, full of madness, and then they go to death. There's that relationship between evil and death. Now, I'm not saying that everybody is equally evil. I don't think it's saying that. He says the children of man are full of evil. Maybe the preacher's thinking about the flood. 
when it says in Genesis 5, their hearts were full of evil and then God brought judgment? Maybe he's taking a step back and thinking about the garden where God said to the man and the woman, the day that you sin against me is the day that you'll die. You, you are dust and to dust you'll return. Now you find that in chapter 4. Abel dies. You see it in chapter 5, and he died, and he died, and he died. You go through that chapter. It is a recording of the people who lived, and every one of them died. They weren't all equally evil, but they were all sinners. And what it shows us is that the source of death is not biological. It's spiritual. It's the tearing away from God. It's the separation of the one who has given us life. So, so in a way, I could say that right now I am dying and I'm causing my own death by my own sin, as you are. This reminds us that medicine and, and technology and science, they'll never resolve the riddle of the certainty of death. It is only in being reconciled to God. It's only being rejoined to the one who has given us life. It really causes us to pause and think about this whole coronavirus and everything else facing us. What causes death? It is my sin. And have I been reconciled to God? Have you been reconciled to God? Have you dealt with the cause of your own death? Uh, but there's a second thing about death that we see. Death really reveals our limitations. I mean, death here in chapter 9 is a preacher uh, to a culture that just loves the fleeting pleasures of life, a focus on youthfulness. Uh, death is a preacher to us, showing us our fragility. We want to be the captain of our souls. We want to think that we control life. We're going to make plans. We're going to grab life in our own hands. And then coronavirus comes along. And what happens? we find, wow, we're not so in control. So I've been checking this website, uh, Johns Hopkins. It's an interactive map uh, that Johns Hopkins has been tracking coronavirus. And it, it tracks by country who has, been, who has contracted the disease, who has died, who has recovered. And, and you can refresh the page every hour and the numbers keep climbing. And, and so we have this ongoing threat that we're facing, right? And, and, and so what does our learned people instruct us to do? Well, stay at home. Now, I'm all, I'm all for that. I think we do need to stay at home. But all that we've accomplished, all the technology we have, what do we have to do? We've got to run. We've got to stay at home and hunker down. Now, I think we ought to do that. That's wisdom. Because I recognize the fragility of our lives and the weakness that we have. But it just is another example of showing us our limitations, how limited we are, that we will all die. So Billy Graham was giving this, um, he was receiving a, a reward, and uh, he gave a speech when he received it in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol building. And if you've been in the rotunda, they have all these busts, these statues of ex-presidents. And so in his acceptance speech, he said, I've been walking through the rotunda, and I see all these great leaders of our country. He said, there's something that they all have in common, that is, that they're all dead, and that I'm going to die and you're going to die. That is a certainty we have to come to grips with. But it doesn't mean we can't die well. So we want to die well. How do we die well? We'll take this to heart, is what he's saying. Examine it. He's already said it in chapter 7. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. That's what he's saying. We ought to examine this. But what does it mean? In other words, for you to consider your own death, 
It's to reveal that the things you're trusting in right now, they can't support you. They can't save you. To look at the darkness of death kind of wakes us from this foolish optimism that we have, that we're going to fix everything and just live happily ever after. To die well doesn't mean that we don't grieve over the loss of our friends and our family. No, many times our grief will be profoundly heavy. But to die well means that I recognize that sin is the source of my death. It leads me to God. To die well reminds me of the brokenness of this life, the disordered nature of the world in which I live. I don't want to live here forever. Uh, To die well means I I hold things loosely in my life. The treasures and the time that I have, they are God's, and I want to be mindful of that. Uh, To die well is to develop this growing longing that I want to be with God, that I don't want to remain here forever. That's what he means by dying well, that we take this to heart. It will lead us to die well. Now, if you're listening and you're not a Christian and you're not sure how you're going to die well, notice what it says in verse 4. He or she who is joined with all the living has hope. For the living know that they will die. This is essential. Uh, Each one of us, the evidence is in, 100% certainty will all die. But we want to be prepared for death. Now, you know, in just a few chapters, we're going to read this passage in chapter 12, 14. He says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the preacher is reminding us that when we die, there'll be a day that we stand before God. A reckoning, a judgment. We want to be prepared for that. So the question is, how do we prepare for this day before God? That's how to die well. And to prepare well, the scriptures encourage us to repent of our sins, uh, to repent of the sins that has caused death and separation, to confess our need for Jesus Christ, to, to trust him that he is the one that God has sent. This is the good news of the gospel, that he has sent Christ to bear our sins, to reconcile us to the Father so that God can be both just in punishing sins that are on Christ, but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So to prepare well means that we confess our sins. Yes, God, we have sinned against you. And I do trust in the one that you've given to me to reconcile, to take my sins upon himself, that I might take his righteousness upon me and I might be reconciled to you. So that's looking at the certainty of death. It's true, it's right, it's there. But there's more. There's another threat. We find that in in verses 11 and 12. And that is the uncertainty of life. Now, this is significant. So we have the certainty of death, but, you know, the life we live leading up to that death is quite uncertain as well. So look in verse 11 with me. He says, again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all. You know, there is something about us. It's intuitive, you know, that we think we live in this morally coherent universe and everything ought to work the way it's supposed to work. So the race should go to the swiftest. I mean, if he's the fastest guy or gal, the shield will win the race every time. And the strongest, he'll win the fight every time. And the intelligent, he'll have the riches every time. But it doesn't happen that way. Why doesn't it happen? Well, he tells us. He says, time and chance happen to all. That word chance, by the way, uh, the word could be translated occurrences or situations. Or we might say accidents happen, right? The runner slips. 
he loses the race. The strongest makes an error in judgment. The wise makes a bad decision. And all of a sudden, they're not getting what we think they ought to get. Time and chance happen to all. But isn't that the case in life for us? I mean, how many of us know how to plan around disasters? We don't even know when disasters come. We don't know what's going to happen next week. He says this in 12. He says, man doesn't know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Think about the uncertainties of life. You know, you can't plan for every contingency in this life. You can't do it. I mean, how many of you, when, when you were younger, you had a plan for life? You wanted to be an astronaut or a scientist or a computer person. Things didn't go that way. Maybe you couldn't get through school. Maybe other events came out. You didn't know. You, didn't, you couldn't plan it. And you're in a whole different path. Or marriage. Marriage was going to be to you a blissful union that would last you and, and carry you in happiness for the rest of your life. Hasn't turned out that way. Maybe death has taken a spouse. There may be other events have come into life that you couldn't plan. And your marriage is not what you thought. Or parenting. Parenting, you thought, finally, I want to have children. And that's my, that's my goal. That's my dream. That will give me happiness. But, you know, you find out parenting is more difficult than you thought. Or more expensive or more difficult. Or the children are more disobedient. And you're at a place. What he's saying here is life is full of uncertainties. You cannot live this life without anticipating that there are going to be great uncertainties, difficulties, and hardships. How do we look at this? How ought we to understand God being good in the midst of this? Well, let me propose an idea to you. Because, you know, you woke up this morning and you think, i got a plan. This is what I'm going to do today. But you really don't know. You know, James warned us from last week in chapter 4. He says, why would you say, I'm going to go to this city and do business, make a profit for a year? He goes, you don't even, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. I think what God does with these uncertainties is he uses the entrance of uncertainties in our lives to wake us up to the, to the reality of this disordered world in which we live. I think what he's doing is he's trying to dislodge us from trying to find our hope and our security and our significance from people or success or wealth or health. I think he's trying to dislodge us. In fact, I would propose to you that it's actually the mercy of God it's his kindness that brings uncertainties into life so that we don't try to build a universe on the sands of this world. So, so here we have, we have the certainty of death in 1 to 6. We have the uncertainties of life in 11 and 12. Well, how do we live in this world as we face these two threats? What do we do? How do we live in light of that? How do we live in the shadow of our own death? In fact, if I were to ask you, if you knew that you would die a year from today, what would you do differently? How would you live? Would it make any changes to the way you live? Because the, the preacher has some advice for us. He says, if you're going to die a year from now, here's what he's saying. And we find this in 7 to 10. This is the meat of the passage between the two threats. He says, go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. 
for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. What he's saying is while you're living in this world, while you're living, live with joy. I mean, Ecclesiastes. I mean, if you've thought Ecclesiastes is a book of despair, you got to read it again and you got to read it slower. This guy is the happiest preacher in the Old Testament. I mean, in his playbook, brooding and foreboding and moping do not occur. He's telling us, he's giving these imperatives, go. These imperatives, those are commands. Go, eat, drink, enjoy life, enjoy food. He's telling us to celebrate and rejoice. Amazing. This is, I don't know, maybe, you know, there was a musician theologian named Prince and he said, uh, we're going to party like it's 1999. I think that's where he's getting this stuff. Now, now, I'll say this. He's not speaking about a kind of a hedonistic partying where it's all self-centered for my own personal pleasure. But what he's saying is God has approved this. God's already approved the joy. What's he mean by this? I think what he's saying is he's going back to the garden. God created food. He created drink. He created wine. He created the male and the female. He created marital intimacy. He created work. He created these things for our joy. And he wants us to find pleasure in the things that he has designed to give us pleasure. I think he's happy in our happiness. And no different than a parent. You know, if you're a parent with children, or if, you have aunt, if you have nieces and nephews, and Christmas morning comes and they're ripping the presents open, there is joy on those kids' faith and faces, and there's joy on mine. I mean, you can't wipe the smile off a parent's faith, face when they are watching their children enjoy the gifts that they were given. That's the same thing with this. Now, I want to make sure you hear me clearly. This kind of joy in the midst of disorder... And this kind of joy in the face of death and in the face of uncertainties, this is a joy. It's not like, let's have another bottle of champagne because the ship's sinking. It's not kind of this false bravado, like we're going we're gonna to be defeated in a massive defeat, so let's go out in a blaze of glory. It's not that way. Our joy is rooted in the fact that these are gifts to us from God, who has both given us the gifts and he's given us the days in which to enjoy them. God is giving us food and drink and relational happiness and works to do. He's giving these things to us because they're a foretaste of all that we have coming. In other words, God is planning something great for us and he's giving us a down payment on it, if you will. And we can enjoy it in the face of death. Listen to what one author said. He said, it is the certainty of death which frees me to enjoy things for what they are rather than what I want them to be. Creation is to be pondered and enjoyed, not plundered for my gain or manipulated for my fame. This shows you the ugliness of idolatry. When we take the gifts of food and drink or alcohol and food and sexual intimacy and works that produce wealth. When we take those and we hoard them to ourselves and we just use them for our own glory and our own fame, we are taking the very things that God has given to us to help us to love him and long for him and we make them about ourselves. It's the worst thing that we can do with the gifts that he's given to us and it leaves us very precarious before death and before uncertainties. So practically speaking, what do I mean by this? Well, what I want you to do, I would even encourage you to do it this afternoon. When you sit down to eat, look at your food. Just take a moment and look at it. You know, before you, don't inhale it. 
But look at it. Look at the colors and the textures and the tastes. You drink your wine or with whatever you drink. Drink it with joy at how it tastes. Just enjoy these things as these are gifts to me from God in this disordered world, preparing me for an ordered universe. Let me enjoy it. Let me thank him for it. Paul says, whatever you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. But not just that. He says, put on garments of white. Don't let oil be lacking on your head. What he's saying is be happy. I mean, like festive occasions and celebrations. You know, we've seen this even in our church. Ray mentioned just a few uh, days ago when you saw the, um, uh, the video of him speaking to the church as an elder about giving. You know, in this time of great despair and financial uncertainty, we've had dozens and dozens of people happily offering to help those who need assistance in various means and measures. They're happy. Here we are in the midst of this pandemic, but we can be happy. And not just that, he says, love or enjoy the, enjoy the life with the wife whom you love. What he's speaking about here isn't just the marital intimacy. It includes that, but it's much more. Enjoying the life with your wife or your husband means it's the times you're holding hands. It's the time you're walking along. You're looking at a sunset together. You're having sweet conversation. And it's not just for married people. It's really speaking about relationships the relationships that we are to enjoy and love. That's, that's what, what the preacher's saying to us is enjoy the people with whom you love. Enjoy their gifts and their personalities and work. He says, whatever your hand finds you to, do it with all your might. That we are to, in this life, in this disordered life, work diligently for the betterment of others and for the glory of God, using your gifts to produce well. You know, Jonathan Edwards was a, a theologian. He was a preacher in the 18th century. And about 300 years ago, give or take a few years, he was a student at Yale in Connecticut, Yale University. And he wrote these 70 resolutions. And one of these resolutions was resolved to live with all my might while I do live. That's what he's speaking about here. That's how we are to have joy in this life, to live with all my might while I do live. So what do we do? Uh, let me give you four takeaways regarding trying to find this, this joy in the midst of this disordered universe that we have, uh, coronavirus just being one example of it. Uh, the first thing would be um, to, to consider your time as brief, to think that your time is short. In other words, I, I want you, like David says in 1 Chronicles 29, 15, he says, um, my days on the earth are but a shadow. So consider that they're brief. If you need help with this, speak to an older person, maybe a person who has less years than you, and just ask them this question. Say, uh, what are some of the things you regret in life? If you had to play life over again, what would you do? I bet few of them will say, I should have spent more time in the office. I should have amassed more wealth. I should have pursued more accolades and accomplishments. I bet you what they're going to go to is the ordinary things. I should have spent more time with the kids. I should have taken more walks. Should have watched more sunsets. I should have enjoyed the ordinary and the simple things more in life. I bet you they'll say that. See, the one thing about time is you can't go backwards. There's no way to recover what's been lost. Time forces us forward. And so we want to think, if our time is brief, how ought I to live? So answer this question to a good friend or a spouse. 
If you had a year left to live, what would change? What would you move towards? What of the ordinary things that you have in life would you grow in appreciation for? I really would want you to do this because uh, this may be striking you right now with conviction, uh, but you wait two or three hours and it's going to fade. We want to be people who hear the word and do the word. That way we don't become like those who look in the mirror, walk away and forget what they've just seen. So consider your time as brief. Uh, secondly, I want you to make joy a priority. I want you to make joy a goal. Notice these commands that he's given to us. That's what they are. They're commands to be happy. So if you struggle with pessimism or stoicism and you just always have a stiff upper lip, consider these commanding us to be happy. What do you do with this? You have to make it a choice. I'm going to be satisfied today in the things that he gives to me. I'm going to be happy with what I have, even if it's not always what I want. And this also is a challenge to those of us who think that asceticism is the way to go. Asceticism is an expression for denying ourselves things so as to achieve a true spirituality or a great holiness. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to partake in, in marriage or I'm not going to partake in food. I'm not going to partake in things that God has given to us thinking that leads to a deeper spirituality. Let me tell you, it's an ancient enemy of the gospel. Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, already said it's the teaching of demons. He says in chapter four, he says, those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. He says, no, for everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. That's what the psalmist says. He says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He calls us to joy. God's made this day. You're in this day. You have this food and life and all the other things in it. Let's rejoice in it. Let's be happy. That's true spirituality. True spirituality is that we find a happiness in God. Now you say, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic, Tom. I mean, how can I find joy in the midst of a pandemic? Well, because of his promise. He says, I'm convinced, Paul writes to the church, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You have the assurance of God Almighty, the sovereign king of the universe, that nothing will separate you from him. That gives us a joy. That gives us a permanence. It gives us a satisfaction. You know, when he promises us to not be afraid, he doesn't promise us that we won't have trouble. He just says, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. So that's the hope. Make joy a priority today. And then third, use, you know, take these opportunities to share your joy with other people. Listen, people are scared. They're frightened. They're getting depressed. They're highly anxious. You know, we have to stay at home now. And so people are out and about. Look for, pray for opportunities to share the hope you have. Share the joy that you have with people. Listen, it's amazing. Our joy in the midst of a pandemic is probably one of the greatest apologetics to our God reigning. So there was a Facebook post that Carol read uh, about in our area, in our communities, that everybody's going to put some neat things out on their sidewalks or driveways and chalk, encouraging one another. And there's all kinds of hilarious things that people are trying to encourage one another with. But Carol put down that... Um, she put down that um, our, our God is, is our hope in times of, of trial, you know, that, that God is our hope and refuge in times of trial and adversity. That's what she put down. She's stating and declaring to everybody, our hope is in God. 
And that's a good thing to declare. So let's pray about the opportunity to share the hope that is within us. But not just that. Let's serve these people. You know, if you have older neighbors, then go get groceries for them. Go visit them to the degree that you can. I know you're not supposed to leave your home, but over the fence or across the, across the street. Seek to serve people. Help them if you can. You know, we have the greatest hope so we can both have joy even in the face of adversity and seek to serve others. So John Patton was a missionary. Some of perhaps some of you may know his name. He was a, a missionary to, a, to the South Pacific Islands in the 19th century. He was going to an unreached people group that were known to be uh, cannibals. And so when he proposed this, one of the elders of his church, you'll never hear this coming from our elders, but this elder exploded and said, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. This is how Patton responded to him. His name was Mr. Dixon. He says, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it'll make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. In the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's the boldness that we can have, that we can take these opportunities to both declare and demonstrate our hope in that our God reigns, even in this time of pandemic. And then last, I would say, use the gifts of God to long for him. Let me explain what I mean. He's given us food. He's given us drink. He's given us garments and festive clothing. He's given us spouses and friendships with whom we love. He's given us talents and gifts to work with all of our mind. He's given those. He's given those things to us so that they would remind us of what is to come, that there is a final. These are really the language of a feast. And he's preparing us for a feast to come. Now, you know, the feast, the whole idea of feast began with God in the garden. I mean, right, as I mentioned, he created all these things. He created food, he created wine, he created intimacy, he created works. We soiled them by sin. We marred them. But God's plan is not going to be, it's not going to be dismantled by our sin. I mean, God made a plan. He calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to raise up a people through you. And even though those people were drawn into slavery in Egypt, he delivered them. And how did he deliver them? Through the Passover. What is that? It was a meal. They celebrated a meal. The meal is what led them out of slavery to Egypt. And then as they wandered through the desert, what did God do for him? He prepared a feast before him. He gave him bread. He gave him meat in the temple. What was that? Well, it's God meeting man around food, the offerings of drink and food. Uh, so God intends to feast with us. That's what our food and our drink and our relationship, it's all as a precursor to what he has for us. When Jesus came, it continued the same. He came and he declared that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then what did he begin to do? He began to minister to people and preach. And he did it around meals. Jesus, one author said, Jesus ate and drank his way through ministry. There were some that didn't like Jesus. They call him a glutton and a drunkard. Now, I don't think he was either of those things, but it does show you how much he did around food and drink. But what Jesus did was in that last supper, around a meal, around a feast, 
he showed how he would be leading a new exodus. Moses led an exodus from slavery in Egypt. But Jesus, not with a lamb as Moses did, but with himself, his body broken, his blood shed, he would lead a new exodus to God that, that Jesus, by dying for us, would put death to death. The very death that we're facing, he would die that death for us. And he would be raised for our justification. I mean, can you around this meal and the Lord's Supper? And I so long to celebrate the Lord's Supper with this church again. And it will be sweet when we come together again. But that Lord's Supper, that meal, that feast that, that revealed what he would do to lead us out of slavery to sin. Uh, that is only a precursor to the meal that we'll have with God. You know, Jesus himself said in ministry, he says, you know, men and women are going to come from the east and the west. They're going to come around the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we're going to feast with God. You saw that in the elders in the Exodus. They feasted with God. God's intention in the face of coronavirus is he's drawing together people. He's giving them gifts of food and drink and relationships and work. And he's giving these things to us that we would look forward to to that feast one day with him. And it's coming about because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has alone, alone has brought that for us, bought that for us. So what do we do in the face of uncertainty? What do we do in the face of the certainty of our own death? Well, what we do is we enjoy the life that he's given to us. Even the life with trials that we're facing, we are going to enjoy him because this is a deposit. It's a down payment for all that he has given to us. Did you notice in verse one, he says that the righteous and the wise and the deeds are in the hand of God. We're safe. Our times are in his hands. We are safe and we are secure, which frees us to rejoice even in the midst of this pandemic. But you know, if you don't have that joy, if you don't censure in the hand of God, I would encourage you to use this time, to use the certainty of uncertainty, well, the certainty of death and the uncertainties that will face your life. I would ask you to use this time and consider what you ought to do, how you ought to be prepared. There will be a day that we all stand before God those of us who have faith in Christ will stand with Christ as our advocate, representing us before God, who will represent you. I encourage you to consider the glory of the gospel and the work of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy to us. You have carved out joy in the midst of disorder for us. And you have assured us this. Uh, because of the work of Christ, his body broken, his blood shed. He is our feast. And he is the one that will lead us to feast with you. And may we as the church of Jesus Christ rejoice in the midst of this disorder. May we be given opportunities to speak to our joy and to demonstrate our joy by acts of service to others happily. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.